The year, 1776. The place, the 13 colonies. A global superpower has gotten bogged down in the bloody quagmire of its own making. How can the forces of King George III defeat the American insurgency? Let's look at the war through British eyes. I'm James Hauser, and welcome to Unknown Soldiers. Hey y'all, and welcome back to the Unknown Soldiers podcast. This is episode 15, The American Insurgency. I am your host, James Hauser, and I hope you guys are excited for this one. This here is an episode where I make full use of that forgotten wars, battles, and perspectives part of my show's description. Forgotten perspectives. Because today we're going to look at the American Revolution from the British perspective. And I think you'll be fascinated to get the view from London. So I was originally keeping this episode on the back burner. There's a lot to go into. I'm even going to have a pair of short rounds next week, pair of short rounds from next week, to mop up some of those lesser known stories of the American Revolution. But I moved this episode up to just after the 45 series because, well, a lot of this story feeds directly from the 45. There's some continuity. So I decided this was the best place in the schedule for the American Insurgency story. After this and next week's short rounds, guys, we are done, 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 done with Great Britain and its military history for quite some time. I have no intention of turning this podcast into unknown British soldiers. I'm already getting the next series ready. Hope you guys are ready for a trip because we're going to Korea for that one. But moving on. As always, this ain't just history, but military history. There is some dark and bloody stuff about. We are PG-13, the language is clean, the content is not. All my sources will be on my website, unknownsoldierspodcast.com, so if you want to know where I got my info, that's where you can find it. Finally, any errors, mispronunciations, or mistakes are mine. I'm always trying to be entertaining, but everything I'm about to say is accurate to the best of my knowledge. This was a real story with real people who don't deserve to be unknown soldiers. Our story today begins with a movie. A movie I kind of hate. Guys, um, I'm going to try with all my might, all the vast resources of willpower I possess within this mortal coil, not to turn this episode into a long rant about the 2000 Roland Emmerich movie, The Patriot. I have a big old can of Patriot hate to get off my chest, but I'll save that for another day. Today I'm going to stay on track. But guys, there's, there's never been a less subtle, less nuanced movie than The Patriot. Mel Gibson literally stabs the antagonist's horse with an American flag in slow-mo. All Americans are goodly good guys except for one evil loyalist who helps burn a bunch of civilians alive in a church, a war crime that didn't actually happen. All British are mustache-twirling baddies. Throughout the movie, Mel Gibson and his band of plucky guerrillas fights the British occupation of their homeland. From the 2000 movie's point of view, American audiences were clearly meant to sympathize with the rebels, with the insurgents. But only a few years later, the United States would find itself on the other side of an insurgency. And for all the sympathizing we did with rebels and insurgents just a few years earlier, when this movie came out... 
People seemed completely unable to comprehend the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan from the other side. We made so many of the same mistakes that the British did that it's almost eerie. Like history repeating itself. So when we found ourselves surprised and confused by this terrible insurgency overseas, we really shouldn't have been. After all, we did the same thing to another global superpower almost 250 years ago. I can imagine King George III talking to George W. Bush, one George to another, saying, Yeah, ain't so easy, is it? My point is that we were looking at the American Revolution all wrong in this time period. To learn how to win wars against insurgencies an ocean away, we didn't need to study the American side of the revolution. We needed to understand the British side. Understand their challenges, their triumphs, their mistakes, and their failures. We needed to look at the revolution through British eyes. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at the American Revolutionary War from a British perspective. I'm taking a strategic view. This won't be a blow-by-blow of all the battles and campaigns, guys. That would be a series. No, we're going to look at the challenges and trials the British faced when they fought the American insurgency. We're going to look at the war as it was seen from London, from the General's headquarters, and around the globe as the British Empire struggled to win the conflict. And I want you to see if you can find the parallels between Britain in 1776 and America in 2001-2003. I'm not going to beat you over the head with them, but I think you guys are smart. You'll pick up on them, because we might have more in common with King George's men than anyone might think. So I'm going to divide today's episode into three sections, following the usual three-part structure of these episodes. We're going to start with the view from London, the British government, and how they conducted the war, what their strategy was. The second part will be the general's perspective, the war in America itself. And finally, we will take a global perspective so we can see how the American Revolution became a world war and how Britain dealt with that. And of course, there will be breaks in between, so you can give the dog a bath, floss your teeth, do the thing you need to do. So I'm going to ask you today, for an hour and a half, to put aside everything you know and feel about the American Revolution to put down your Betsy Ross flag and pick up your Union Jack, to put on that red coat, powder your wig, maybe even warm up some tea. And let's try to see the campaign from the other side. The war in America came as a complete shock to Britain. The United Kingdom of Great Britain in 1775 was more powerful than at any time in its history, and this was as a result of the Seven Years' War, known as the French and Indian War in North America. After some initial setbacks, Britain had just smashed France and Spain in one of the greatest victories in its history, becoming the dominant European power in the Americas and India. Britain conquered Canada, Florida, most of the Caribbean. It was just a huge blowout victory. So Britain was riding high when the war began. It had left its rivals in the dust and become the global superpower. Even as the American Revolution was taking place, 
Two other revolutions began in 1776, pioneered by two lowland Scots. Adam Smith's publication of The Wealth of Nations kickstarted the true capitalist revolution and is basically the birth of modern economics, while James Watt's invention of the first feasible steam engine began the Industrial Revolution. London was the place to be, where all the great advances of the world were taking place. It was the cutting edge of technology, culture, economic and philosophical thought, its only rival being Paris. There was a feeling that British culture had triumphed to become the global destiny, the future of all mankind. It was a British world after all. And then the war came. The colonists in America, a misunderstood and backwards people, had failed to appreciate how much effort Britain had put into defeating the French and Indians. They refused to contribute a red cent to pay the massive bill for a war that had been fought, at least partially, in their own interest. They rejected the British government and laws that had made Englishmen some of the freest people in the world. They terrorized the king's officials, abused and tortured loyal citizens, and destroyed public property. And then they fired on the army when it tried to confiscate illegal weapons and arrest known terrorists. When news of the battles of Lexington and Concord reached Britain about a month after they occurred, Lord North, Prime Minister to King George III, realized they had a war on their hands. So I'm going to ask you guys, very carefully, to understand that the British government, heck, the British people, largely saw the American war as a justified, righteous war. They didn't see themselves as imposing tyranny on America. They saw themselves as defending liberty in the British Constitution, both of which depended on the authority of Parliament. The British saw themselves as defenders of the Glorious Revolution. They believed that the American Rebellion was the work of a small cabal of power-hungry radicals who had launched the country into anarchy and lawlessness. They also believed, and this is the big one, that the majority of Americans were loyal, that most Americans supported Parliament, and that the Revolution was essentially an illegal coup achieved through mob violence by a hostile minority. Was this true? Eh, we'll get to that. But there was also a fear motive, and I think a lot of Americans don't understand this. The British were terrified that rebellions in America would mean the disintegration of the rest of their global empire. They were afraid that if they didn't put up a strong resistance to the rebellion, that their worldwide position and prestige might never recover. The British decided to go to war in 1775, not just out of a belief in liberating people from what they considered tyranny, but also from fear that this unchecked violence and chaos could destroy the British way of life. If they didn't respond to this aggression with overwhelming force, well, how could anyone respect the British flag ever again? But I say all this to establish that at least at first, the war was popular in Britain. It had majority support both in Parliament and with the public. Now, this didn't mean that everyone was behind the war. There was a large and vocal anti-war faction from the beginning. These were the guys on the more liberal side of the House of Commons, guys who sympathized with the American cause and believed that North's pursuance of this costly overseas war would lead the country to disaster. Some of the best politicians in British history, men like William Pitt, 
Edmund Burke and Charles James Fox were the vocal leaders of the anti-war minority. There were protests, pamphlets, even mobs sometimes protesting the war effort. Anti-war activists were, of course, branded as traitors, especially since it seemed like they were gloating over British defeats. King George and his government might have said, oh, you're either with us or you're against us. Between the hardliners and the opposition, there were plenty of people who believed that the Americans were in the wrong, but also opposed armed invasion. They proposed to compromise, to come to a diplomatic understanding, and try to meet the colonies halfway. And a compromise proposal just before, or even just after the war broke out, might have patched things up, even in 1775. War could have been averted. But the hardliners had their way. They believed that force was the only language these people would understand, and a military triumph would be necessary to bring the Americans to terms that the British could accept. A British armada would cross the Atlantic to overthrow the radical coup that had taken over America. So now that we've established the decision to go to war, we have to examine the British strategy. What were they trying to do? How were they trying to win this thing? Well, the British thought they could win the American war based on a set of assumptions. Their generals, politicians, journalists mostly shared these assumptions, and people who disagreed with these assumptions just weren't listened to. They weren't allowed to challenge the narrative. There were three big assumptions. The first was that the American military resistance would be ineffective due to their lack of any real military power and the anarchic style of American government. The second was that a majority of Americans were loyal to the crown, that they were just waiting for an opportunity to return to a free and civilized government and that they would welcome the British troops as liberators. The third was that the war would be quick, civil government would be restored in a couple of years, and the whole mess would be over before other international problems got in the way. Now we know that all of these assumptions turned out to be wrong. Almost every major British mistake, every major British defeat, would be the direct result of relying on these assumptions. Because the danger of false assumptions is that when you start a whole war and plan a whole strategy around them, you ignore contrary evidence. That maybe American resistance would be a real problem. That maybe the British military would not be welcomed by the population who would see them as invaders and occupiers, despite what they kept saying about bringing liberty to a tyrannized people. And that maybe this war wasn't going to be a shock and all thunder run conflict that could be won in a couple of quick campaigns that it would require enormous costs, a large-scale occupation, and a constant drain on British resources. But when people brought these possibilities up, the British government ignored them. Acknowledging that they might have a point might mean accepting that the war could not be won, and that was absurd. The United Kingdom was the greatest, most powerful nation on Earth. It could do anything its brilliant leaders and brave soldiers set their minds to. The sky was the limit. So who was running this war? Who was in charge? Based on everything America knows or thinks it knows about the revolution, King George III was the bad guy, right? He was the man running the war against America, right? Eh, wrong. 
For all the American ranting about the crimes and tyranny of the king, for all that the entire Declaration of Independence was directly addressing what King George III had done to the American people, George himself had very little to do with the outbreak of the revolution or the conduct of the war. Remember, glorious revolution. The king isn't in the driver's seat. Parliament is. George III's only real role in the war was to motivate and encourage his ministers and to try and persuade Britain to fight on even when things looked darkest. He saw the loss of America as the end of Britain as a world power, the destruction of his nation's prosperity, and he saw it as his duty to his descendants and his people to defeat the American insurgency. So then there's the Prime Minister, Lord North. So if the king ain't running things, he has to be running things, right? Eh, wrong. North was a good politician, but completely unsuited to be a war leader. His main job during the revolution was in playing the political game, keeping Parliament united in support of the war, but he had almost nothing to do with the actual strategy or planning of the conflict. In fact, North was a big-time pessimist, one of the guys always saying that Britain was doomed, one of the guys always looking for a compromise peace, even after that was long out of the question. The two men who were actually running the war were not the king, not even the prime minister. They were Lord George Germain, Secretary of State for the Colonies, and John Montague, 4th Earl of Sandwich, the 1st Lord of the Admiralty. We'll talk about Sandwich later, but the man we need to focus on in this section is George Germain. Lord George Germain was the man who ran the war in America, and he would be the one that everyone would blame for losing it by his contemporaries, and by historians. He was one of the hardliners, the men who believed that America needed to be subdued with military force. But his mistakes were common to all the rest of the government, that reliance on those assumptions. But Germain was an easy man to blame for other reasons. For one thing, he already had a bad reputation. He was accused of cowardice during the Battle of Minden in the Seven Years' War, gaining the nickname the Coward of Minden, and he demanded the court-martial to exonerate him of the charges. This was a dangerous thing to do in that time period. After all, John Bing had been executed to encourage the others within very recent memory. But Germain got his court-martial, and though he wasn't executed, he was dismissed from the army. Even during the Revolution, the opposition would bring up Minden whenever they wanted to get under Germain's skin, and it worked. But there is the fact that Germain was probably homosexual or at least bisexual. There were plenty of underhanded insinuations about Germain's sexuality, in addition to his handling of the war effort. But Lord George Germain had to deal with a mountain of red tape, a mind-boggling and inefficient military system, and the cast of divas and egomaniacs that made up Britain's political and military leaders. And considering everything he had to deal with, he did pretty well. The machinery of Britain's 18th century military was a mess. There was no system of centralized command. There was no general staff organization. The army didn't even have a real commander-in-chief. Technically, it was the king, but again, he had no real power to dictate strategy or policy. There was a secretary at war, but he wasn't even in the cabinet, and he was only really responsible for administrating the individual regiments. The army was administered by a dozen different departments, three of which were responsible for shipping supplies and competed with each other to hire ships to ship those supplies. Guys, this is nuts. This makes the Pentagon look downright simple. 
Okay, okay. How hard was it for Britain to fight this war? How hard was it to send a large army, numbering at its height around 50,000 men, over the Atlantic to subdue the rebellion and supply and maintain it over there for almost a decade? It was a nightmare. It was a nightmare. Obstacle number one was the Atlantic Ocean. The distance between Plymouth and the UK, one of the main points of embarkation, and New York is about 3,300 miles. And in old sailing ships, that would take around two months, sometimes three to four months, one way. If you were lucky, if your ships didn't run into a storm that scattered them to the four winds, which happened a lot. Just random anything could send an entire convoy into absolute chaos, so that critical food, or those critical troops, or even that critical message didn't reach its destination in time, or just never reached it. One message took eight months to get from London to Canada. Sending stuff across the Atlantic was a crapshoot and no one could account for it. Delays in the shipments of supply were one of the main reasons that British generals always started their campaign so late, since those tents and horses that you expected in May might not make it until August, and this made long-distance planning almost impossible. Okay, sure, that's the first problem. But you also have to raise that army to send across the Atlantic. See, Great Britain was not ready for war. You might say they went to war with the army they had, not the army they'd like to have. In 1775, the British army was probably around 40,000 strong. Seems like a lot, right? Well, think again. Factor in all the important garrisons in America, in Canada, in the Caribbean, in Africa, in India, in Gibraltar, and Menorca, and the British had around 9,000 men on hand to cross the Atlantic and help subdue the colonies. The British army was deployed around the world. It just had too many commitments to too many other countries, and it would stretch itself to the limit trying to fight the war in America. There just weren't enough soldiers for the war the government wanted to fight. They tried to raise a larger army, but recruiting was difficult, especially as the war got more unpopular. The Highlands were always a great source of recruits, and they sent some of the strongest regiments to America, but by 1777 they were pretty much tapped out. The army had to lower its recruitment standards to meet the demands of the American insurgency. Deserters were allowed to re-enlist, people were spared jail time by enlisting in the army, and the age limits were changed. Even rules against enlisting Catholics, oh lord, Catholics, were relaxed due to the need for troops but none of these produced the numbers that the British needed. The answer to this problem was mercenaries. The government contracted with multiple German states, including Brunswick, Hesse Kassel, and Ansbach Bayreuth, to hire out their professional regiments to fight in America. By the late war, the so-called Hessians, just a catch-all term that they used for all Germans, would make up one-third of the British forces in America. Britain literally could not fight the war without them. They were necessary. But using German mercenaries was a double-edged sword. They became famous, deservedly or not, for their brutality and were inherently alienating to the Americans, who listed the use of foreign mercenaries as one of their main grievances against King George in the Declaration of Independence. Alright, so you got an army. How do you get it to America? Shipping was one of the British government's biggest issues throughout the war. 
there were just not enough merchant vessels or navy vessels to get all these troops and all these supplies overseas. And if, even if there were enough ships, one bad Atlantic storm and the poor soldiers in America weren't getting their rations this month. British sea transport and shipping was a constant bottleneck, especially when American privateers were just an absolute menace, with 1777 being a particularly damaging year. And the more ships the government hired, the higher the prices went, because every random civilian captain knew that the government would basically pay whatever he asked. Oh, and the different government departments were all competing for shipping, driving up prices even more. Oh, and there was a little fact that in all the previous wars, American ships had made up about a fifth of British shipping. Guess what was no longer available after 1775? Oh, it gets worse. See, the British arranged to ship this huge army over to America on the assumption that the army would conquer a large area thanks to the weak opposition and all that American loyalist assistance. And they would be able to feed themselves by buying food and equipment locally. But the British never managed to conquer a large area of the countryside, so the army's food and forage and supplies came directly from Britain, from 3,500 miles away on an increasingly limited shipping route that was prone to attacks by American privateers and just being blown away by a massive storm. Oh wait, it gets worse. Because by 1776, the British weren't just feeding their army with an average of 34,000 men and 4,000 horses, which ate up 37 tons of food and 38 tons of hay and oats daily. They were also feeding that army's women and children, along with a growing number of loyalist refugees, runaway slaves, Native Americans, and prisoners of war. And all of these contractors and unforeseen costs and the need to rebuild a government and support local leaders, all that added up. Which brings us to the central problem. Money. Which was, in a way, the source of all these problems. Remember why Britain did try to tax the colonies in the first place? They were still trying to pay down their debt from that victorious Seven Years' War. Defeating your mortal enemies ain't cheap, y'all. So, the British government was already dealing with the problem of its enormous national debt before the war broke out. Britain tried to tax the colonies, because they were broke. In 1775, they were still broke, but now they had to wage a war. Funding would be a major constraint on all British military operations. By trying to fix their money problems, they had made them worse. The government always had to try and keep the cost of war low, to keep from hitting the British taxpayer in his wallet and losing his support. Plus, you can't raise taxes on the wealthy, they worked hard for that money but that meant the British had to wage war with their current budget. The interest payments on the national debt already accounted for about 43% of Britain's tax revenue, and that would rise to 66% by the end of the conflict. Two-thirds of their taxes were going to pay off the debt. The national debt almost doubled over the Revolutionary War. The war put the British government deeper in the hole that they had started the war trying to climb out of. Huge sums of British taxpayer money went into the unwinnable war for America, a fact that the opposition parties never hesitated to point out. But no one was willing to raise taxes or impose more burdens on their people to win the conflict, and there's a good chance the British people wouldn't have stood for it anyway. They wanted to win the war, they just didn't want to sacrifice anything to do it. The army was at war. The British people were at the mall. Or whatever passed for a mall in 1776. 
As the war went on, the political situation declined. The opposition grew more strident, more critical. Political scandals and riots discredited the government. In 1780, the anti-Catholic Gordon riots rocked the city of London. Germain and Lord North were both literally run out of their houses by angry anti-Catholic mobs, who even tried to storm Parliament. The war grew unpopular, social unrest and anxiety spiked. There was a fear that Ireland would break out in rebellion, a fear the French would invade. The war had been intended to make Britain safer, to secure its place in the world, but instead, it seemed like everything was worse. It seemed like everything was falling apart. Despite all this chaos, the fact that the British sent and sustained a massive army in America was an enormous achievement. It was one of the great logistical accomplishments of military history, coming pretty close to some of the things the Allies would accomplish in World War II, and really deserves more credit than it gets. It was an amazing feat, but all that effort would be wasted on a strategy that relied on those assumptions we talked about earlier. Assumptions that would be proven wrong. It might have been the world's greatest military machine, boosted by the world's largest economy. But when the core logic underpinning the war was proven false, would any of that matter? So the British sent their army to America. It was made up of some of the best troops in the world, under some of the best commanders in the world, and supported by the strongest navy in the world. It was a military that people believed could do anything, even conquer an insurgency in a vast and foreign land. They sailed to America to bring freedom to a population ruled by a tyrannical minority. Or so they thought. They might have called it, I don't know, Operation American Freedom. The war in America was never supposed to be a counterinsurgency. That was not the, what the British military was designed for, and it wasn't the kind of war they wanted to fight. George Germain himself noted that, An enemy that avoids facing you in the open field is totally different from what young officers learn from the common discipline of the army. In short, an army designed and trained for conventional warfare and that was very good at it, had to learn to fight an unconventional war. So let's talk strategy. How did the British plan to defeat the rebellion? Well, they never expected to try and occupy all 13 colonies. No one thought the British army was even remotely capable of that. General William Howe, who led the first campaigns against America, openly said that it was beyond the ability of the entire British army to conquer America. There was just too much land for too few soldiers. 30,000 Redcoats and Hessians were a massive force, the largest army that had ever been sent across the Atlantic by any power, but far, far too few to subdue a country of 2.4 million people by force of arms alone. The ultimate British objective in America was to defeat the Continental Army in a conventional campaign and then to gain the support of the population, which was after all, supposed to mostly be loyal to King George. Lieutenant General James Robertson, who had been governor of New York and had decades of experience in America, 
estimated that two-thirds of the population was loyal and that Britain's goal in the war should be to assist the good Americans to subdue the bad ones. So the British sent an army that was too small to truly occupy America to win a rapid series of conventional victories and liberate the loyalists from their radical tyrants. What do we see here? We see the assumptions that the British made about the war influencing their strategy. The size of the army was dictated both by the facts that Britain's military and treasury were already overstretched, but also by the assumption that American resistance would crumble under British firepower. There was also the assumption that the majority of Americans were loyal and that the Redcoats would be greeted by a cheering population, happy and eager to be liberated from tyranny. Finally, the assumption was that these two factors would combine to allow the war to end quickly before the global situation spun out of control. <sighs> well guys, we know what happens when we assume, don't we? In history's list of people who did their best in a bad situation, the British commanders in America would be pretty close to the top. They were handpicked for their competence, courage, and experience. The major figures, the Howe brothers, Charles Cornwallis, Henry Clinton, were all at least good generals, and some of them were excellent generals and admirals. Only one of them, John Burgoyne, was truly mediocre in my opinion, and even then he wasn't nearly as bad as some historians say he was. The brothers General William Howe and Admiral Richard Howe would lead the big invasion of the colonies in 1776. Both of them came immensely qualified. William Howe would fault the French in America as a battalion commander and developed revolutionary light infantry tactics and techniques for waging war in the American wilderness. Richard Howe was one of the best admirals in the Navy and was one of the first great innovators in amphibious warfare. These guys were the best of the best. What's more, the Howe brothers had both been opposed to the war. They had openly spoken against using troops against America. They disapproved of the conflict, but agreed to serve out of a sense of duty, a little bit of ambition, and out of a belief that they could come to America and hopefully iron out the issues without any severe fighting. Throughout the coming campaign, whenever the Howe brothers were in charge, they would be constantly sending messages to the colonists after they beat them over and over again, hey, wanna talk? Hey, wanna talk? We can stop the war now, let's talk. Let's hash this out. This was why both Howe brothers were appointed as peace commissioners, with the power to negotiate for terms that would be acceptable to the Americans. But if a war had to be fought, the British and German troops they led were rock-solid professionals, some of the best equipped and trained troops in the world. How could any rebels, any insurgents, stand against these brave boys? They were their nation's heroes. Well, not really. The British weren't big fans of their own soldiers, but you get the point. It would take one crushing military victory to end the war in 1776. It would have to be shock and all. The British arrived off New York Harbor in July 1776, but the Howe brothers tried a peaceful approach at first. They met with a small delegation of Americans, including Benjamin Franklin and John Adams. Franklin had been an acquaintance of the Howe brothers before the war even started, and basically said, hey guys, there's no reason for this to be a big war. Why don't we iron out some peace terms? But it was too late. 
the Americans had already signed the Declaration of Independence and committed themselves to the conflict. The Howe brothers shrugged, said, huh, we'll, we'll, we'll talk with you guys ever want peace. And they got to work. The New York Campaign of 1776 is one of those things Americans would rather forget. It was one of the worst defeats in American history. You know what? No. Not one of. The worst. The British Army curb-stomped the Continental Army. The failures were agonizing, downright catastrophic. Admiral Howe's Navy worked closely with the Army and gave it unparalleled combined arms support. General Howe's excellent tactics and professional soldiers completely outmaneuvered George Washington's ragged force. American troops just ran away from the bayonets of the Hessian Grenadiers, the Highland Regiments, and English Light Infantry. By the winter, Washington's Continental Army had been reduced from around 20,000 men to around 3,000. It was a remnant. And from any objective standpoint, it had been one of the most successful military campaigns in world history. Howe had virtually destroyed Washington's army and captured New York, the most important city in America. By 18th century standards, this was an enormous victory. Many people in Britain assumed that the war was over, that within a few months that Howe was going to capture Philadelphia and destroy the rebellion. General Howe might have said, mission accomplished. But there were danger signs on the horizon. As the British marched into New Jersey and New York, the expected Loyalist support came. But it wasn't high, and it wasn't enthusiastic. All the really talented local leaders seemed to be siding with the rebellion. And many of Washington's troops hadn't been killed or captured. They had just gone home with their weapons, ready to come back and fight another day. And many of them would. See, the British had fought and won a conventional campaign. The kind of campaign their army had been trained to fight. The kind of campaign their generals wanted to fight. They had fought open field battles against a stand-up enemy and they had won, hands down. But this victory was deceptive. The American armies and militia units had a troubling habit of dissolving, then suddenly reappearing to fight another battle. American General Nathaniel Greene had a motto he would use throughout the war. Fight, get beat, rise, fight again. It was like playing whack-a-mole. Or, okay, I got a better analogy. Hope you guys are ready for a superhero reference. Y'all remember Spider-Man 3, the original Spider-Man movies with Tobey Maguire? Well, if you don't, Spider-Man fights a villain called Sandman. Sandman is, as one might expect, made of sand. He can disintegrate to avoid or absorb Spider-Man's punches, then suddenly come back together to deliver a punch of his own. You could punch him all you like and might hurt him, but it wouldn't kill him. He would just fall apart, but turn your back and he's rebuilding. Fight, get beat, rise, fight again. The American forces in the Revolution were like that. George Washington was always struggling to keep the Continental Army intact, supplied, and fed. They were always worse off than the British, and sometimes they were starving, freezing, in rags, hiding in the forests or the mountains. We should never downplay how badly the Continentals had it. But they were always out there, ready to launch a raid on an exposed position or strong point. This is exactly what happened at Trenton in 1776 when Washington's supposedly destroyed army defeated the small Hessian garrison in New Jersey. Not only did this raise American morale and possibly save the revolution, 
it caused the British to realize that maybe the mission was not so accomplished after all. So, assumption number one, that the Americans weren't going to offer really serious resistance, was beginning to fall apart by 1776. Washington's counterattack at Trenton had been a pinprick, but the Americans were already turning out to be more trouble than anyone expected. The British had assumed that their main problems in America would be logistical, not military. And logistics never stopped being an issue. The slow arrival of supplies, the low numbers of troops, would always be a major constraint on military operations. But now that their first shock and awe invasion was complete, they had to deal with assumption number two. The question of loyal Americans. So, the Loyalists. Those Americans that would remain loyal to King George III. I have given serious thought at some point or another to doing an entire episode on them someday, because I think the Loyalists are one of the least understood and least appreciated groups in the revolutionary story. Now, they're some unknown soldiers. There's only one Loyalist in the movie, The Patriot, and he's basically one of the worst and scummiest people in the movie. Resist, resist making this about The Patriot. There's always this bias in American histories that the Loyalists were somehow traitors, seditious, sellouts, usually rich, fat cats, or backwards-thinking conservatives, or just bad people. And I don't think that was true. After all, think about it. If you were some random dude in 1766, and you believed the colonies should be independent, everyone would think you were out of your mind. Ten years later, in 1776, if you didn't think they should be independent, well, now you were a Tory a traitor, a lackey of the tyrant. Your mind might not have changed one bit. Your position didn't change, theirs did. And in your mind, they might be the traitors. And there were significant numbers of loyalists. They included some surprising communities. For example, most of the Scottish Highland immigrants, forced or not, were loyalists. Among them was, um, Flora MacDonald. Remember her? The Highland heroine who helped Charlie escape over the sea to Skye during the 45? Well, she and her husband had immigrated to North Carolina a few years before the revolution, and they raised loyalist militias to fight against the rebels. Flora MacDonald carried a fiery cross along the Cape Fear River Basin to call out the clans for King George III and the Hanoverian government. The Highland militia were heavily defeated by Patriot militia on February 27, 1776, when they attempted a Highland charge at Morse Creek Bridge near Wilmington, a battle where no British soldiers were involved whatsoever. Flora and her husband had to flee back to the Scottish Highlands. There would be several battles like this, which would be almost exclusively American battles. Loyalist American units versus Patriot American units. In the South, especially, it was an out-and-out -out civil war. The problem was that Loyalist units almost never won without some kind of British support. For whatever reason, Loyalist units were not the match of their rebellious adversaries. So this raises the question, right? How many Loyalists were there, really? Well, we don't exactly have public opinion polls, so there's no way of being sure. There were definitely never as many as the British thought, but there were definitely more than most Americans would admit at the time or think today. Many historians peg the Loyalists at around 15-20% to 20 of the white American population. That is not an insignificant number, that's a fifth of, the, of America. 
but it definitely ain't no majority. And that number would change over time as people's opinions changed and as refugees fled the colonies. And since the Loyalists were in the minority, that meant they needed to be protected. And if they weren't going to be protected, there was no point in sticking out their necks for the British cause. Whenever the British marched into a new area, they would try to drum up Loyalist support, and sometimes they got a surprisingly high turnout. But if the British moved on, and they usually had to since there weren't enough redcoats to occupy the whole country, Patriot militias would come out of the woodwork and punish anyone who had helped the hated invaders. Loyalists faced arrest, torture, and sometimes murder. The British tried to spread their troops out in places like New Jersey or South Carolina to protect the Loyalists, but this opened the British troops up to American counterattacks against weak and isolated garrisons. This was one of the big paradoxes of the British war in America. They never had an army large enough to occupy the whole country, so they had to rely on local support. But that local support was never as strong as they expected. And when British troops weren't around, their supporters were exposed to terrorism and mob violence. The British felt a commitment to helping their friends. But every loyalist that was tarred and feathered, every pro-British militiaman who was dragged from his home and hanged, made it less likely that any of them would help the invaders even if they wanted to. It just wasn't worth risking themselves or their families when they were going to be terrorized and have retribution meted out. The British were frustrated by what they saw as a lack of courage or loyalty to the crown, but who could blame these guys? As General Howe invaded Pennsylvania in 1777, he reported pessimistically that The prevailing disposition of the inhabitants seemed to be accepting a few individuals strongly in enmity against us. This was, of course, a problem because the entire British strategy for winning the war relied on the assumption that the majority of Americans were, in fact, loyal. Lord George Germain wrote that, Our utmost efforts will fail if we cannot find the means to engage the people of America in support of a cause which is equally their own and ours. General Henry Clinton, who succeeded Howe as the main British commander in America, wrote about the need to gain the hearts and subdue the minds of America. Hearts and minds. Gosh, where have we heard that before? British leaders openly stated that they were fighting the war on the assumption that they had majority support in the colonies. And if they didn't, well, why are you fighting the war in the first place? The hunt for this elusive Loyalist majority that had to be somewhere in America, right, would lead to Britain to some of its worst disasters. The first big one was General John Burgoyne's invasion of upstate New York. Burgoyne led an army from Canada deep into hostile territory to try and split the colonies down the Hudson. Popular histories of the war depict this as an obviously terrible strategy, especially since General Howe didn't march north from New York to join him, and instead ran south to capture Philadelphia. Burgoyne's forces, overburdened with too much baggage and camp followers, badly armed for a march through the American wilderness, were eventually surrounded by thousands of local militia and forced to surrender at Saratoga in October 1777. On the surface, Burgoyne's invasion seems like a terrible mistake, and Howe's decision not to link up with him from the other direction, from the south, seems almost as bad. But if we look at the assumptions that both men were operating under, their decisions make a lot more sense. 
the British assumed, A, that the only real resistance would come from Washington's army, which Howe would fight in Pennsylvania, leaving the way open for Burgoyne, and B, that upstate New York was hardcore loyalist country. Everyone had told them this, and they believed it. The thousands of local militia never even entered into their calculations because they weren't supposed to exist. Burgoyne was supposed to be marching through friendly territory. No one had the slightest notion that he would be in serious danger until it was far too late. The incorrect assumptions the British made about the American War led directly to the disaster at Saratoga, and this was the big victory that persuaded France and later Spain to enter the conflict. The Saratoga Campaign, more than any other British defeat of the war, shows how much they had underestimated the American insurgency. The, the ability of an American army to suddenly assemble basically out of nowhere and overwhelm a conventional force really reinforces that Sandman analogy I made earlier. This was another paradox of the British war in America. Those periods when the British enjoyed their greatest victories, New York 1776, the Carolinas 1780, were immediately followed by their greatest defeats, Saratoga in 1777, Yorktown in 1781. Being on the ropes, being desperate, gave the Americans more energy, more fire, more determination. The very presence of British troops to defeat the rebellion made the rebellion worse. So how did that work? Keep in mind, the British always claimed to be liberators. They said they were here to fight for the freedom of the Americans from the hostile minority that had launched a coup. But these proclamations of liberation were accompanied by military government, by civil war, by troops marching through your streets and breaking down your doors and going through your stuff. Sure, they claimed to be looking for weapons or insurgents, but all too often they just seemed to be doing it out of spite. If you did come out and support them, they didn't have enough troops to protect you. Even if you tried to stay neutral, that wasn't good enough for either side. After all, if you're not with us, you're against us. And the British troops did not always behave like saints. War crimes are a part of every war. Yes, every war, even the cleanest wars. British and German troops committed numerous atrocities in the colonies, especially when frustration with the guerrilla war began to rise, and the locals perceived the British generals as not doing nearly enough to stop them. The British troops just saw every American as a possible rebel, as a possible insurgent, and treated them accordingly. Now, the British were never the ravenous hordes depicted in movies like The Patriot. They definitely behaved better than they had in the Scottish Highlands after the 45. It was never anywhere near that level. True war crimes were relatively rare, but that never stopped the American propaganda mill. One, a couple of war crimes could be turned into a rallying cry for the next several years. For instance, one incident during the Saratoga campaign, when a British allied American Indian killed a young woman named Jane McCrae. The irony that McCrae was engaged to a loyalist officer was not lost on American propagandists. American General Horatio Gates wrote an angry letter to John Burgoyne, decrying the Young lady, lovely to sight, a virtuous character, an amiable disposition, scalped and mangled in the most shocking manner. The biggest outcry came from the fact that Burgoyne did not punish the Indian murderer, because punishing his allies' bad behavior would drive many of the Indians away. 
The occupying army had to put up with their allies' occasional atrocities, or they would have no allies left, even if the British soldiers themselves were shocked and horrified by what went down. Which is yet another British paradox. They didn't have enough troops, so they had to get desperate and look for outside help. But the methods they used to get more troops made the rebellion even worse. We already talked about the Germans, but now there's the Indians and eventually escaped slaves in the British ranks. The presence of these people electrified American opposition. Now, the British were never the Indians or the African Americans' best friend. The British were currently practicing brutal slavery in the Caribbean colonies. These guys were allies of convenience. But by encouraging, number one, Indian attacks on the frontier, and number two, slave rebellions, the British government was hitting the two biggest panic buttons they could find for America. These were the two things that Americans were most terrified of, and the fact that the British were using them in a conflict that was supposed to be for American liberation only drove more people to the Patriots. The British use of Indians, escaped slaves, and especially Germans helped radicalize the Americans and unify them behind the insurgency. British military victories only intensified Patriot opposition. Armed gangs of guerrillas were operating anywhere the British tried to spread out and occupy. Detaching troops to occupy fortified positions and guard their supply columns was yet another strain on a British army that was just not big enough for the job it was trying to do. Everything the British did, every strategy they tried, and they tried many different strategies, only seemed to make their situation worse. This became most apparent in the last big British effort to win the war and hopefully find this pocket of alleged loyalists. After the defeat at Saratoga, the new British commander, Sir Henry Clinton, decided to open a campaign in the supposedly strongly loyalist southern colonies. The British captured Savannah in 1778, and then in 1780, Clinton led a large army that captured Charleston. The siege lasted for weeks and destroyed much of the city, enormous collateral damage that did nothing to help the British popularity in the region. Oh, there was another bad habit the British had, the overuse of firepower and force that could destroy property and leave people homeless. Sloppy use of firepower that caused significant collateral damage, and then the British wondered why everybody didn't love them. So either way, Clinton declared victory and went back to New York, leaving South Carolina in the hands of General Charles Cornwallis. And Cornwallis, I kind of like Cornwallis, to be honest with you. He was an excellent soldier, a hard-fighting professional, and he did his best. He defeated the Continental Army in the Battle of Camden and spread his troops out trying to pr protect the South Carolina Loyalists and subdue the countryside. But soon he was fighting a legitimate guerrilla war. Patriot militia leaders like Francis Marion, Thomas Sumter, and Andrew Pickens led their troops from the swamp, and Patriot and Loyalist forces skirmished all over the Carolina backcountry. The British troops had to restrain their own Loyalist allies from committing barbaric acts of reprisal against the Patriots, who had, I'll remind you, been terrorizing them for the last four years or so. And Cornwallis had to send more and more British troops to keep order, leaving him fewer and fewer to actually fight the rebel army. When he did manage to force a battle against General Nathaniel Green at Guilford Courthouse in 1781, a tough fight that Cornwallis, outnumbered two to one, led with great bravery and won with brilliant tactics. 
the British suffered such high losses in their victory that he had to retreat. The British lost almost 25% of their army in the Battle of Guilford Courthouse, even if they won. After Cornwallis retreated, Nathaniel Greene's army would drive the British out of the Carolina countryside. Greene fought three battles against the British in 1781. He didn't win a single one, not on paper, but just by fighting, he cost the British so many casualties that they were forced to retreat and abandon more territory each time. Greene's brilliant strategy forced the British into a no-win situation. It didn't matter how many battles they won on paper if they were losing the war. Fight, get beat, rise, fight again. So the British strategy in America had failed by 1781, but it had really failed long before that. American resistance had not crumbled under the invasion, but had unified and grown. The British could occupy the cities, defeat the Americans in every conventional fight, but there were never enough troops or money to lock down the country. The Loyalists were not strong enough, and the British generals on the ground came to realize they weren't fighting an army or even a small cabal of radicals. They were fighting an armed population, an insurgency, a people that did not want them there. But no matter how many people reported this to King George III or Lord George Germain, no matter how many pessimistic letters General Howe or Clinton or Cornwallis sent, the people running the war refused to believe they had lost. They refused to believe that the alleged majority Loyalist population would not rise up and resist the rebels if they were just given more time, more training, more weapons. They refused to believe that the greatest military machine in the world could not defeat this little insurgency, which always seemed to be on the brink of ruin. They captured rebel leaders or killed rebel leaders, seized rebel strongholds, did everything they were supposed to do, and it just wasn't dying. They refused to question the assumptions that had led them into the conflict, refused to believe that their superior form of government and brilliant ideals of liberty could be so thoroughly rejected by a population they had come to liberate. How could these people side with the terrorists? The notion that maybe they had misunderstood the conflict from the get-go never seemed to enter their minds. They didn't listen to generals who said the war in America was lost, that victory was out of reach, that they needed to pull back and reprioritize and focus on the real threat from Britain's great power adversaries. They listened to generals who said the war could still be won, that they were about to turn the corner, that they were making progress against the insurgents. They saw the evidence they wanted to see and ignored the evidence they didn't. They continued to pitch more resources and men into a losing war, doubling down on a bad hand, even as their country faced growing threats overseas. The British leaders allowed themselves to sink deeper and deeper into the American quagmire. The British government had gone to war in America based on three assumptions. They had assumed that American resistance would be quickly defeated, and that the majority of Americans would support the invasion once they had won the conventional war. Both of these assumptions were quickly being proven incorrect by 1778, and now it was time for the third one to fall apart as well. 
This was the assumption that Britain's prosecution of the war in America would not harm its international standing, that the war could be completed before Britain's major geopolitical rivals could take advantage of their distraction. See, as soon as the American insurgency started, the British knew there was a ticking clock, a time limit, before France and Spain were ready to go to war and take advantage of this distraction. Their long-term enemies would not miss an opportunity like this, not in a million years. And Britain did not realistically have the military strength to take on America and its European enemies at the same time. By overextending itself in an insurgency that it was ultimately losing, Britain had created an opportunity for its geopolitical rivals to make whatever moves they wanted. France and Spain had paid close attention to the war in America from the get-go, and they had been getting their forces ready. Throughout 1776 and 1777, they had been sending gunpowder and weapons and other supplies to the rebels. The Americans relied on European imports because they couldn't manufacture enough of their own gunpowder. I've seen various figures, but the highest is that like four-fifths of America's weaponry and ammunition came from France or Spain. French officers like the Marquis de Lafayette had arrived as, wink-wink, private citizens to join the rebellion as well. Britain was furious that supposedly neutral countries were arming and equipping, sometimes even training, the insurgents. But with the victory at Saratoga in 1777, the European enemies had the chance they were looking for. While Britain was stuck in the American quagmire, they saw a chance to recoup their losses from the last war. France wanted its sugar islands in the West Indies back. Spain wanted Florida, Gibraltar, and Menorca back. It was less, let's help the Americans, and more, while Britain's stuck in the American quagmire, let's go get our stuff back. See, when France entered the war in 1778 and Spain in 1779, this turned the American Revolutionary War into a global conflict, a world war. And I think that to Americans, this is the least known part of the struggle. Some of the most important battles and events of the American War took place completely outside the 13 colonies. I'm so interested in the global side of the revolution, it's kind of one of my obsessions, that I'm releasing two short rounds next week to talk about, just to talk about, forgotten events of the global revolutionary war. But when the revolution became a global conflict, Britain now had to play defense all over the world against France and Spain. The vast majority of their army and a good chunk of their navy were tied down in the counterinsurgency, a counterinsurgency they were losing, by the way, and much of the British worldwide empire was only lightly defended. This included Canada, Bermuda, the Bahamas, the West Indies, the Mediterranean outposts of Gibraltar and Menorca, several outposts in Africa, and finally the new empire that Britain was building in India. The most important of all of these, the most important objective of the war, were Britain's sugar-producing islands in the Caribbean. And these were astonishingly important, surprisingly. The British were prepared to lose the war in America, if need be, to keep these tiny sugar islands, Antigua, Barbados, Grenada, Jamaica, etc. The Caribbean sugar and rum trade, which I will remind you was born on the backs of thousands of slaves, was worth three times what the trade with India was worth. It was a pillar of the British economy. If they had lost the American colonies, well, those colonies hadn't been financially profitable anyway. That had 
kind of been the problem, hadn't it? But if Britain lost the West Indies, it would be a financial disaster and possibly the end of the British Empire. When France declared war in 1778, then, this required the British government to readjust its priorities. A lot of focus in American history goes to how much direct help the French gave the Americans. Like, you know, material help. They sent troops and ships to the 13 colonies themselves. But the real help both France and Spain gave to the U.S. was to force Britain to reorient its strategic priorities. As soon as it became clear that France was preparing for war after Saratoga, the British government basically said, all right, America is officially priority number two. They are on the back burner. They are not our biggest problem anymore. Orders were immediately sent out to withdraw almost half the army and much of the navy from America and redistribute it all over the Atlantic. The Caribbean, Florida, Canada, the Bahamas all had to be defended. To show you how serious this situation was, there was even a proposal, backed up by King George III no less, to evacuate America entirely, to pull all the troops out and concentrate all their efforts on fighting France. But ultimately, they didn't. In the end, the British weren't able to let go of the American war, even when their real, mortal enemies were lining up to destroy their position in the world. Britain had ruined many of its European alliances in the last few years through arrogance or neglect, so they had no one to counterbalance their opponents, even as most of their military was stuck knee-deep in the American quagmire. The British inability to admit they had lost the war, their continuing commitment to an insurgency that they had failed to defeat and really had no new ideas to defeat, their failure to withdraw when they really had other things to worry about, left them vulnerable on the world stage and in danger of an actual disaster. The World War for America was the Navy's war. The British Royal Navy was the best and largest fleet in the world, true, but with so much money and so many men going to America, it had been neglected ever since 1775. It was already overstretched. The Royal Navy had to maintain a decent fleet at home to protect Britain from invasion, but they also had to protect supply ships from privateers. They also had to support the army in its amphibious invasions. And they also tried to blockade the American coast to intercept all that support going to the rebels. And there just weren't enough ships to accomplish this. The blockade was famously ineffective, like French and Spanish ships just got into America all the time. John Montague... 4th Earl of Sandwich, 1st Lord of the Admiralty, had been ringing the alarm bell about the Royal Navy's unpreparedness for great power conflict for years, but all the money and all the seamen were going to support the war in America. This left Britain's naval forces under strength as the French threat was clearly rising. Sandwich was reminding the government every chance he got, Hey guys, France and Spain are looking at us like a college kid looking at the dollar menu. We should really do something about that. But it was too late. See, naval strategy is a built strategy. Ships have to be laid on and constructed years in advance. You can't raise a ship of the line in a couple of months like you can a regiment of infantry. So when the war with France broke out in 1778, the Royal Navy was at its weakest point in decades. Sandwich would do a lot to fix that in the next few years. And by the end of the war, the Navy would once again rule the waves but it was too late. The disaster had already happened by then. 
So for the next five years, 1778 to 1782, British strategy in the World War was like a weird shell game. They kept their limited number of ships running around from the West Indies to America to Britain and back, trying to anticipate where France and Spain would strike next. The problem was that Britain was on the defensive everywhere, while France and Spain could attack anywhere. The Royal Navy was constantly scrambling this way and that, like a soccer goalie trying to block a never-ending sequence of balls. You can be the best goalie in the world, but eventually some are going to get through. Soon, Spain and France were causing emergencies all over the world. Spain was besieging Gibraltar, one of Britain's most important strategic outposts, and that story will be next week's first short round. Spanish forces invaded Florida, and that story will be next week's second short round. French fleets scooped up multiple British sugar islands, and they would have taken more if the army and navy hadn't sent large forces to that theater. Finally, and most dangerously, in 1779, a combined French and Spanish fleet in the English Channel caused Britain's largest invasion scare since the Spanish Armada. It was one of the only times in history when their enemies had actual naval superiority in the Channel. They had more ships in the English Channel than the British did. And of course, everyone blamed Sandwich for this, even though he had been raising, ringing the alarm bell for years about it. So the Royal Navy just had too much on its hands. It had to guard the channel against an invasion. It had to run supply convoys down to Gibraltar at least once a year or the city would fall. It had to escort other supply convoys to America, Canada, the Caribbean, and India. And when those fell through, when the British dropped the ball, it could be a disaster. In 1780, Britain lost the entire West Indies convoy to a Spanish fleet, losing over 60 ships full of valuable merchandise. It had to keep a large number of ships maintained in the West Indies, since both Britain and France now consider that the main theater of war and losing the West Indies would be a disaster. And of course, it had to protect the forces still in America from the possible combination of a French fleet and an American army, which together could isolate a British army and force it to surrender. If you know your Revolutionary War history, you know what I just described in that last sentence. This is what happened at Yorktown. But the fact that Yorktown happened, the fact that the Royal Navy dropped the ball and allowed Cornwallis' army to be trapped in Virginia, shouldn't have been a surprise. What was surprising was that it hadn't happened sooner. It had almost happened already, in Rhode Island, 1778, in Savannah, 1779. When American forces and French fleets did come together and almost destroyed isolated British outposts. The only reasons they didn't succeed were British competence, courage, and skill on the one hand, and problems with French and American coordination on the other. But the British had been running the risk of a Yorktown scenario, of a Yorktown problem, for the last four years, ever since they decided to continue the American war in spite of real danger from their great power adversaries. So what exactly happened in 1781? How did Britain's great defeat at Yorktown finally come about? The British government continued to chase victory in America long after it was out of reach. 1781 was the seventh year of the American insurgency, and if anything, victory was farther away than when the war began. Britain's continuation of the war was like an unlucky gambler, desperately throwing in more money to try and recoup his losses. Just one more roll, one more roll of the dice, and maybe this time we'll get it all back. All I need is one really good roll. 
And so Cornwallis marched into Virginia. It was the same old story. He busted up whatever American forces were in the area. His cavalry almost captured Governor Thomas Jefferson at his home in Monticello. He caused general havoc all over the colony. And wherever his army marched, they picked up escaping slaves, including several of Jefferson's own slaves. But what they didn't find was victory. Cornwallis had been acting on intelligence, wrong intelligence, that Virginia had a large loyalist population. But surprise, surprise, no. So he decided to hole up at Yorktown, get supplied by sea, and figure out what to do next. And really, what else was there to do? By now, British forces had trooped through every single one of the 13 colonies, looking for this mythical loyalist majority that apparently never existed. They could hold the cities on the coastline, but not the countryside. And they got wrecked every time they tried to move up into the mountains or the forests. British forces in America had been stripped to the bone to defend the rest of the empire. They were losing territory, they were losing loyalist support, they were losing public confidence. Generals and politicians kept insisting that they could win the war, that loyalist forces could stand up to the Americans, that they were turning the corner, even when this was clearly false to anyone on the ground. By trying to continue the American war, long after it had been lost, the British courted disaster. They found it in October 1781. Washington's army marched south and isolated Cornwallis by land at Yorktown. A French fleet under Admiral Francis Joseph Paul, Comte de Grasse, arrived off the coast of Virginia, and the British squadron was not large enough to stand in their way. The constant bottlenecks of shipping and transport and supplies and reinforcements meant that Cornwallis' army was not large enough to break out and didn't have enough supplies to withstand a siege. The lack of naval support meant that no help could break through the French cordon. His only choice was to surrender on October 19, 1781. Yorktown was a disaster, a massive defeat. As soon as Lord North heard the news, he walked back and forth across his parlor in shock, occasionally throwing up his hands to the heavens and shouting, Oh God, it is all over! Yorktown caused the downfall of Lord North's government, including Germain and Sandwich. Even King George III wrote a letter of abdication, feeling that he had failed his people and his country. Here is what that letter said. His Majesty, during the 21 years he has sat on the throne of Great Britain, has had no object so much at heart as the maintenance of the British Constitution. His Majesty is convinced that the sudden change of sentiments in one branch of the legislature has totally incapacitated him from either conducting the war with effect or from obtaining any peace, but on conditions that would prove destructive to the commerce as well as essential rights of the British nation. His Majesty, therefore, with much sorrow, finds he can be of no further utility to his native country. Obviously, George never sent the letter. He was talked out of it. And the letter only came to light many decades later. And this is where the American side of the story ends, at Yorktown. But the World War continued. Britain had lost America. Would it lose the rest of its empire as well? Surprisingly, no. Because once the British finally accepted that they had lost America, they could turn their undivided attention to saving what they had left. 
Disasters seemed to keep piling up. The French fleet under de Grasse moved south from Yorktown and scooped up a bunch more Caribbean islands. A Spanish fleet captured the Bahamas. The Spanish and French took Menorca in February 1782. It seemed like the British fears were coming true. The loss of America had caused the collapse of the empire. But in 1782, the British pulled off an amazing recovery, one of the biggest recoveries in military history. On April 12, 1782, the British fleet of Admiral George Rodney smashed de Grasse in the Battle of the Sante, capturing the French admiral who had trapped Cornwallis at Yorktown and ending the French threat to the West Indies. The Siege of Gibraltar, which had been going on for four years with tough resistance, was won when Admiral Howe led a relief convoy, guns blazing, through the French and Spanish fleets to resupply the garrison. And British naval squadrons in the Indian Ocean stopped the brilliant French Admiral Suffron from overrunning British India. These last-minute victories, and Britain's continued occupation of New York, Charleston, and Savannah, made the British bargaining position in Paris much stronger than they expected a few months earlier. The last priority the British had in America was to evacuate the people that had helped them. The last few months were full of desperate loyalists and escaping slaves trying to get to New York and to freedom. The Americans were furious that Britain was running off with so many escaped slaves, with some slave owners trying to break into New York and recover their quote-unquote property. But the British held on to their final footholds, at least in part, to continue the evacuation of the people that had helped them. They knew what would happen if their allies fell into American hands. Torture, imprisonment, possibly murder, especially for those slaves that had taken up arms against their masters. Many British officers felt shame, anger, and bitterness when they left America. Not just because they had lost, though yes, but because they abandoned so many people who depended on them for protection. Thousands of loyalists had put their necks out for the British occupiers. And Britain, to its credit, took responsibility for these people. They got out everyone they could, packing the ships full as they sailed off into the Atlantic. Almost 70,000 loyalists fled America after the war. Most white loyalist refugees settled in the British Caribbean or Canada, where they made up the majority in some Canadian provinces immediately after the war. Black refugees settled in Nova Scotia, Britain, or the new colony that Britain founded for black loyalists, Sierra Leone. Refugees from the American War were thus a big part of the founding stories of multiple modern nations. It was the least Britain could do for the people that risked everything for what they considered freedom. So when Britain looked back at the American War, they knew they had been beaten. They had lost the 13 colonies. All their assumptions, all their mistakes, all their willful blindness to reality had led them to this point. They were forced to give up Florida and Menorca to Spain, and some Caribbean islands and African and Indian trading posts to France. And, of course, they had to recognize American independence. When George III acknowledged American victory to Parliament, his voice choked while reading the words, Free and Independent States. But they still had an empire. They had saved Canada, India, Gibraltar, and the Caribbean from possible disaster. They had lost, but it could have been a heck of a lot worse. The work of the men whose blindness and delusion had lost America also sowed the seeds of a new British empire across the globe. And one of the big people involved in building that empire was Charles Cornwallis. 
He had always been popular with his men and with the British nation, and he had a long and successful career after Yorktown, leading his redcoats in victorious wars in India and in defeating the 1798 rebellion in Ireland. Cornwallis, like the rest of the British Empire, bounced back from his greatest defeat. Even King George III seemed to accept the defeat with grace. When John Adams arrived in London as the first U.S. ambassador to Great Britain, George greeted him with this statement. I wish you, sir, to believe, and that it may be understood in America, that I have done nothing in the late contest but what I thought myself indispensably bound to do by the duty which I owed to my people. I will be frank with you. I was the last to consent to the separation, but the separation having been made and having become inevitable, I have always said, as I say now, that I would be the first to meet the friendship of the United States as an independent power. George III believed he would witness Great Britain's death as a global power with the loss of America. But when he passed away in 1820, he ruled over one-twentieth of the world's population, over an empire that would be the world's dominant superpower for the next century, an empire on which the sun never set. The war for America, with all its untrue assumptions, had wounded the British Empire, but it would come back bigger and stronger than ever. It would be a British world after all. So what does it all mean, James? What's the point? Why should I care? So, I hope you guys enjoyed that view from the British side of the Revolutionary War. It's interesting to see things from a different angle, right? An angle that might feel a little more familiar than some people might like. I didn't go too far out of my way to make the analogy between Britain and the American Revolution and the United States and the Middle East. But when there was a similarity, I tried to subtly point it out. I didn't want to beat you over the head with it or anything, but I think you guys are smart and you probably found all the parallels. I do want to stress this was never an exact analogy. Nothing in history is. Everything is a completely different situation. The biggest differences I see in general terms were that American forces in Iraq and Afghanistan never suffered catastrophic defeats like Saratoga or Yorktown. No large American force was ever forced to surrender. Likewise, America didn't have to fight a conventional war after 2003, while Britain faced not only America's Continental Army, but also the French and Spanish armed forces. For comparison, imagine if we were at war with Russia and China, a limited non-nuclear war but still a war, while trying to occupy Iraq or Afghanistan. That would be crazy, right? Well, keep in mind that was basically the situation Britain faced after 1778, and they not only held on for five more years, they won some significant military successes in that time period. I wonder if we could do the same. So anyway, let's see what can be learned from the American insurgency. What mistakes did the British make? Well, they chose overwhelming force from the get-go, when diplomacy or even a much more careful application of force would have been a much better option. They planned and prepared for a big shock and all military campaign that would win the war quickly, but instead found themselves doing nation-building, trying to support a loyal population that was never as big as people continued to claim. And they kept doubling down on a war they were clearly not winning, which allowed the global situation to deteriorate to a point that placed Britain in very real danger. 
Only a series of near-miraculous victories in 1782 kept them from complete disaster. If you'll notice, I didn't talk much about British tactical or operational mistakes in this episode. I didn't talk about individual battles or maneuvers very much. Well, that's because the British, for the most part, did these smaller-scale things very well. They were almost always man-for-man, better fighters than their American adversaries. Their tactics were usually very good, their campaigns were usually professional and well thought out, their logistics performed miracles given all the difficulties they faced waging a war across the Atlantic. There was nothing wrong fundamentally with British tactics or logistics or military abilities. The average redcoat or navy seaman could look back and say he'd done his best. The big British mistakes of the revolution. What led them to accidentally spark the war? What led them to incomplete victories in New York, Pennsylvania, and the Carolinas? What led them to disaster at Saratoga and Yorktown were assumptions they held on to in spite of contrary evidence. The biggest one, the one that kept crippling them, was the delusion that their government and their military actually enjoyed the support of the people. This was not true, and relying on this assumption was the real mistake that led Burgoyne to defeat at Saratoga. Trying to hang on to the colonies in spite of the dangers posed by European powers, in spite of the fact that the war was clearly lost to all but a few of Britain's self-deluded leaders, led to Cornwallis's defeat at Yorktown. What we can learn from this is that you can do everything else right in a war. Your soldiers, your generals, your support personnel, and your leaders can all do their jobs to the best of their ability. But if the core assumptions that your entire strategy is based on are wrong, and you don't change your mind when presented with evidence to the contrary, you're headed for disaster. There's no way around it. These three assumptions, that resistance would be minimal, that the population would see the invaders as liberators, and that the war would be over quickly and wouldn't damage our international standing, were also key components of American hubris and overconfidence in Iraq and Afghanistan. I'm not going to air my own opinions on those wars here. They're still way too recent in my opinion. But I think if you read between the lines today, it's pretty clear where I think the histories of these separate conflicts echo each other. No, I don't think history repeats itself. I've never believed in that. But sometimes it rhymes, it echoes. And when we look to history for lessons, as I think we often should, we need to be self-critical and ask ourselves if we're falling into the same traps as the people we say, well, that was crazy. I would never do that. But would we? Because my big worry right now is that we came out of the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq without having learned anything. We didn't learn from what we did wrong. We didn't do it after Vietnam, and I worry we're not doing it now. We're looking for someone to blame, when the problems of Iraq and Afghanistan go much deeper than just the scapegoat of the weak. For the price that we paid for thousands of American and allied dead, and tens of thousands of civilian dead, and trillions of dollars in a lost war, what the United States should have gained from Afghanistan and Iraq was a very real and painful sense of our own limitations. That American troops and air power and corporations and gung-ho can-do spirit cannot do everything, and trying will bring disaster. But instead, we assume we're still untouchable, we're still invincible, that America will always triumph. 
We keep reverting back to Britain in 1775, before they learned the hard lessons that came with the American insurgency. So if we assume we're untouchable, we're invincible, that we'll always triumph, think again. Because you know what happens when you assume. Thanks a bunch for listening today, and thank you also for your continued support. All I ask is that you spread the word. Let people know that this program is running. Every little bit helps. If you want to support in other ways, there is a donate button on my website at unknownsoldierspodcast.com. You can find me on Facebook or on Twitter at UNKSoldiersPod. You can even email me at unknownsoldierspodcast at gmail.com. I always appreciate feedback and commentary, even if it's just kind words. I ain't perfect. You got advice? I want to hear it. And in one more week, we're going to be finally done with that red coat for a while. You can put that red coat in the back of your closet. I will have two short rounds ready for you, talking about forgotten parts of the American Revolution World War that I mentioned today. The first is the French and Spanish siege of the British-held Rock of Gibraltar, 1779-1783, the single largest engagement of the Revolutionary War, one of the longest and most important sieges in world history. The second short round talks about a campaign so obscure there's not even really a good book about it. That is the Spanish Gulf Coast campaign against British Florida, led by America's best friend down in New Orleans. General Bernardo de Galbes, the Spanish Lafayette. So look out for Fire on the Rock and the Spanish Lafayette next week on Unknown Soldiers. 